Well, last week we went through one verse in about 40 minutes. And this week we're going to go through, I think, 34, 35 verses in about four and a half hours. (laughs) I cannot overstate the reality of the magnitude of the story of creation, the the story of the beginning of the Christian faith. I can't overstate it. Creation is our initiation into everything else in our lives. Think about the regular common day, everyday issues that you and I face. How, How to think through well and biblically about transgenderism. It finds its root in proper understanding in creation. Or marital infidelity. How do we think about that? How do we think about the the common or everyday now crisis of abortion or suicide prevention or behavioral and chemical addictions or the current rise of what is called the boy crisis? How do we recognize everything around us with a biblical understanding and worldview? The Christian view of, of every issue that seems to present itself is actually, amazingly for us, grounded biblically and scripturally. And from the first, it is grounded in the beginning. It sets the trajectory of how we ought to live and think in our days forward. If we misunderstand the point of Genesis 1, we will misapply the point of Genesis 2 through Revelation 22. Genesis 1 lays the unmistakable theological and practical groundwork of all that God wants to give us and will give us through his word. And if you've ever read it, or heard it preached before, it is the foundation. It's, it's a foundation which has authority on how we are to relate to God and to everything else. It, it lays this foundation for us. So I can't overstate how important this, this chapter and a couple of verses is. In fact, over the last several weeks, knowing that this sermon is coming up, I truly just kept getting emotional. Like not crying like a baby, but just overwhelmed at the totality of all that is presented here. And we'll get into that in a little bit. The words of the beginning are stunning. They are complex, while also being very orderly. They're poetic, they're symbolic, they're literal, they're historical, and even a little unfathomable. I have not been able to get over how awesome pieces and in full this passage has been. And as a Christian, for all of us, we ought to just come to it amazed at how impactful the author, Moses, has intended this text to be for us. Now, sometimes you and I might approach a verse or a passage and and rightfully want to break it down, almost like peeling away at an onion. You can dissect this. You can look at it didactically. You could break this down like a legal scholar would. Maybe like the book of Colossians. You can just go to town on every little participle or symbol or uh, uh, phrase in there. Oftentimes, and that's a good pursuit to do. And oftentimes, you might not look at something in a didactic way, but you might see the authorial flow of what is being presented here. We've been doing that in the book of Matthew, where sometimes Matthew is presented to us as a parable, and we read it as a parable. Or maybe it's presented to us as a story. So we read it as a story and understand, why did Matthew piece this story next to that story? And what is he actually bringing our attention to over time? But then sometimes you just come to passages like this. And you and I don't have the time of the day to break it apart every bit. And that is not the intention of what Moses is doing for us. He is putting something on the table for us to completely just marvel at. One time I was in London, and there's that giant mall that's famous. I can't think of it now, but there's that giant mall. And in parts of it, there's like chocolate, and there's clothes, and all of that. But what does everyone want to see? That 
overwhelming giant diamond that is behind so much glass and protection and bodyguards. They take it away in the night so no one can see it. You might even think of the Declaration of Independence. You know, we all became very aware of how important the Declaration of Independence is when it was almost stolen overnight in that one movie. Remember how critical it became? Come on, has everyone seen that movie? The, yeah, okay. You look at that diamond on display. You look at that declaration behind bulletproof glass. And what, is, what are you called to do when you see those things? You just marvel. You just can't believe that it's even there in front of you. And that is the approach that Moses would have us in this text. We are to be encouraged towards a response of worship by just seeing the unfolding, overwhelming creation narrative from our God. This word, though, by the Spirit of God came to and through Moses, to a particular group of people in its original form, and then to us today. It is, it is not just a story that you pack away in a closet, but it was written for a particular people. And then for us, we'll see later how it's written to us as well. The, the people who would have first heard this would have been people who would have been in a desperate state of fear. You've probably been in a desperate state of fear in your own life. They would have been in a desperate state of misery. They would have been scared. They would have been overwhelmed. They would have felt like life is hovering over them like a cloud or a rainy day. They would have been exhausted because they were trying to live through a day and age where they were being seemingly destroyed. Every day was long. Every month was miserable. Hope was continually smashed. Moses was writing this text to the Israelites as it seemed like they were constantly running from their lives and being tempted to despair. And what he aims to do is bring order to their understanding of how all things were made. Israel would have been heard or Israel would have heard this creation account when they were in exile in Babylonia. There's a historical context here. We know the dating of Genesis when it was written to, and it was written to a particular people, and these people would have been in, ex in exile. The Babylonian armies had overrun this small, seemingly insignificant people group. They had killed many of them, and the ones who, were swept, who uh, weren't killed were swept away into exile. An onlooker would assume that the Babylonians had defeated Israel's God, who in their eyes and in their minds would have been known as Yahweh, and it looked like Yahweh was being crushed all around them. They burned his temple. They destroyed his holy city. They enslaved his people, and it looks like Yahweh is no match to these competing gods that people seem to worship in. And for us today, you, you can know about this through an ancient creation epic that is called Enuma Elish. And it is said in the Enuma Elish that this ancient foreign god named Merodach, and you can read about him in Jeremiah 50, this person or this god which is not real seemed to be the creator of the heaven and the earth after battling the ocean goddess Tiamat. It says in this epic account that is thousands of years old that he, quote, made positions for other gods to rule in the stars and the moons. And it said that he established earth and hell and created mankind to, quote, bear the burden of the gods so that they may rest. On and on this epic goes, which is older even than our account, that says that Merodach was not only mightier than Yahweh, but was actually the one who was established as Lord of heaven and earth forever. And so we have this competing, think, think of yourself back in the day, these competing almost uh, allegiances that you are being tossed and turned between what is true and what is right when everything seems to be going against your own life. These various gods, people thought, caused Israel to appear weaker and weaker. And within these competing philosophies and views of Israel, no doubt, afraid of the world around them. And here's Moses 
back into the historical context of the text. Here's Moses, who God sent to remind his people who they were following. The creation account would not only serve to correct and and unclutter mentally the view of reality, but also it was intended to give these weary Israelites hope and help as they pursue God when it seems like all of the earth hates them and is against them. The creator of the universe was the one who they were under the protection of, the the sovereign God, the maker of heaven and earth, the crowning of image-bearing life, the one who made male and female. Moses is saying, this is really who God is. So Moses' goal for them then is my goal for us today. When we approach this incredible declaration, friend, be comforted with the knowledge that God is the sovereign creator, that his world that he created, that you and I live in, and its destiny is entirely controlled by him. You and I will approach, I would imagine, I'm going to speak for all of us here, you and I will approach this text with some sense of wondering, is my life falling apart? Is there anyone in control of that? Is there anyone in control of the world? Am I believing in something that just isn't true? There, there are competing agencies against this, and do I have all this wrong? And what Moses is responding to them and to us here today is that focus your attention on the one who has absolute authority, total sovereignty, and we can trust in that because look at all that he made for us to enjoy. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, from the creation account here, we are reminded that there is one king who is reigning over all. So first, for our time together this morning in the word, I want you to notice a couple of things that seem to rise to the atop. We, we think about this. We're not going to go through necessarily this in chronological order through this chapter, but we want to see what are, the, what are the big total things that Moses is bringing our attention to. And the first one, clearly, is he is presenting the king of the universe created the world with his very word. The king of, think about it. The king of the universe created all of the universe with his very word. Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The entire universe is what's understood here. Heavens and earth. You remember last week where this is a, this is a phrase, this is a ling- linguistic phrase called a merism, where he's basically saying, we sung earlier about removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. What's that mean? All of our sins. Here, God has created the heavens and the earth. What's that mean? He's created Everything, everything he's made, and that's how the Bible begins, a powerful, confronting message. Now, you might you view this text as just beginning something that appears romantic. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. I've heard a lot of symphonies play this. I've heard a lot of soft, melodic notes from this text, but this is a confrontation that Moses is giving his people, saying, you are hearing from other pagan gods that they created. No, no, no go right back against them and say, our God created the heavens and the earth. Not any pagan gods, but Elohim, as it's written in its original text. In the beginning, he created everything. Not anyone else. And for our time today, not by anything else. Things didn't evolve over time to where we look at them. Things were spoken. Words were spoken. And boom, they were there. But there's a seeming conflict within the narrative already going from verses 1 to 2. And there have been people who have staked their lives on trying to understand actual, the roller coaster ride that is presented here even already in verse 2. And here you think of everything. And now it's like the camera is focusing our attention from the heavens and the earth, now here to the earth. 
So allow your eyes to be adjusted in what God is going to do in this case. As things shift, look at verses 2 through A. I'll read it to you. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Conflict seems to escalate from a sense of formlessness or emptiness. Maybe your Bible has the word void in there. Everything was formless and void. A, a formless desert, you might imagine, where nothing can live. To then darkness was over the surface of the deep, over the waters as it appears. It's a pitch black, no light at all scenario. All that exists, all that is out there is formless, empty, dark, like a vast black hole. Nothing can live or develop in the earth. It is true chaos. The, the most extreme form of chaos is darkness and no control. But there is a ray of hope in verse 2 as the narrative continues. Look at the second part of that. After the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Again, you need to see here a separation. What, what Genesis 1 continually brings our attention to is a separating act by God in all of creation. Where there is conflict, there is still the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God is not part of the chaos, but the Spirit hovers above that chaos like an eagle gliding above. We might just have in our minds what the, what the Psalms will later develop in our understanding of, of who God is in our lives. He is above and over all here. Nothing can live here, yet the Spirit is at work. And it's here where God begins to speak. It's here where He begins to speak. And His first word actually attacks so think of this, we often think that the creation account is this beautiful picture, but it is a war scene where God is attacking chaos and darkness. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the midst of darkness, light was created. God forces back this lifeless darkness with a radiant light that will make life on earth now achievable. And in verse 4, it says that God saw light and saw that it was good and then separated the light from the darkness. He called the light portion day and the dark portion night. Here, he's separating and creating. He's forming things in his creation account. Notice here that God sets limits also within his creation. He's setting boundary markers within his authority. You know, you can launch thousands of years forward and we might question, well, who's really in charge of our lives? Well, the same one that, that made boundaries for the skies and day and night. He's constantly bringing us boundaries on how he wants us to live and day one is a pattern that will unfold in the first three days. When you look at this creation account, I think it's helpful for you to, to single out days one through three, and then single out days four through six. There's a common pattern that's happening in days one through three. Certainly, there is different things being created within this, but what's really happening in days one through three is God is forming the earth in its entirety, and then later he will fill it in verses four through six. So he's, he's doing a lot of formation in days one through three, and then he's doing a lot of filling in four through six. These are about separation, where he's forcing back patterns of chaos with darkness or water and growing things, only to fill it later in days four through six. And I want you to look at verse six here. This is day two. And I want you to notice that he speaks again. His word takes on destructive colliding waters. His word separated the waters that were under the expanse of the other waters and that were above the expanse of others, and it happened. I think that's one of the most amazing parts of the creation account. God said something, and it happened. Parents, how eager are for you to say something, and then it happens. 
And the earth was being formed, and God is forming things, water below and water above, air now to breathe. And then he speaks again in verse 9. This is day 3. He summoned waters to come together, causing dry land to appear. He's forming the earth with land, with water, in a definite form. There's now, there's now a sky. <laughs> there's now oceans. There's now land. There's now days and nights. Think about this. From chaos and darkness and despair, there is beauty in his midst on the third day. And all of this, and even vegetation, came about by his voice. Now think about this. Compared to the earlier chaos, where there was formlessness and emptiness, there is now form. There is day and night. There is sky above and water below. The seas and dry land are now abundant with vegetation. And at this point, our God is ready to fill it with what he wants to be imparted to it. Keep in mind the big picture, though. God is forcing back the destructive powers of chaos with this powerful word. Is not hard to see if you're a student of the Bible or you've been a Christian for any point in time. Is that not what God continually does with his people? Forces back chaos and destruction only to bring a new order to their lives. You might think of your own heart. What happened when you gave yourself to the Lord? When you became a believer, all of chaos was separated from you and his glory and goodness was now filled to you. That is the beginning of what we have here in this picture. The redemption that we worship about our God is unfolding even within the first couple of sentences. And then he would fill it with his goodness, we see in this creation account. On day four, he filled his creation with days and nights, cosmic rotations, sun and stars. On and on we could go. I would imagine you've seen, some of you have seen the pictures that NASA has released. They, if, if the Hubble telescope wasn't cool enough, they made something bigger and they send it out further. And it took amazing pictures to where all you can do in responding to those pictures is go, wow, look at that. In the same way that when scientists keep producing an incredible amount of microscopes, we keep dividing things that we thought were solid and we go, look at the one who created all of this. And guys, he did it with a voice. Isn't it remarkable? Just stars, you know? I can't even do laundry in 30 minutes, and he just makes the galaxies. And it all makes sense to him. Now place yourself back in the context of the original hearers. Ten times in Genesis 1, Moses repeats the phrase, God said. God said, God said, God said. Ten times we see scripturally. It's symbolically, ten times symbolically in the scriptures is a number of fullness. Moses repeats this phrase, God said, ten times, giving us the number of completion here. He, this would trigger the Israelites' minds, would have heard this in an oral narration. This would have triggered in their minds, as they would have been good Jewish people, where they would have heard something that had ten words before. The law that was given to them on Mount Sinai was given through ten words, ten commands. And in ten words, you would see in Exodus 20 that God brings a foundation of his law so that we may know how to live. But in the beginning, we see in Genesis 1, God brings them in ten words a foundation of just who he is. He's the king, and everything is within his universe and control. How the Israelites would have been hearing this creation account we recognize would have given them comfort. Friends, I wonder how, what kind of comfort it brings you. I know that there are so many of you who day by day are suffering and you are tempted to despair in the sense of life is spinning out of control and I wonder if I can even pray or praise the one who has it in control. Friends, let the ballast of God's glory be set for you by 10 words. In the beginning, he spoke and he controls and it was no accident. 
In ancient times, when a king would speak, when a king would speak, it would happen. In a day and time, in an ancient time, when a king would lay his stamp with a ring on melted wax, armies would invade. You would imagine how Israelites would have heard this creation story. Calvin sums this up with us. It's the image of a king uttering a decree from the throne, and by his speech, the thing is done. We're an owner of everything. The owner of the law, the owner of the universe has spoken, and he speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it happens. He wills, and it comes to pass. Our God is the sovereign king of the universe, and nothing in the earth happens without his will. There's no such thing as chance or happening. There's no such thing as uh, cosmic battle royales between angry sun gods and angry sea monsters. All of that, God is mocking in Genesis 1, saying, I made the stars. I made the sea creatures. They submit to me. Friends, just by understanding his voice as going out and creating, does it not give you a sense of awe and wonder and move you to a position of wanting to worship him completely? Now, a second thing I think that rises to the top of this, and if you're using an outline in front of you, I'm not at point two. I'm actually at point three. Point three will be point two, and point two will be point three. So what I want you to understand is that when God made everything, everything that was made was seen as good by him. All of the universe as it was created by him was seen as good by him. The creator, the authoritative one, says this is good. Six times we read in this text, and God saw that it was good. The light was good. The dry land was good. The the vegetation was good. The sun, the moon, the stars were good. The the fish, the birds were good. The land animals were good. Six times. And finally, then God created human beings. And the seventh time we read in verse 31, not only was good, but God then saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. Now, God created his kingdom on earth very good in its totality. And we can see this, especially on days six and seven. There seems to be a a special attention, or there, there is a special attention that Moses wants to draw us to. And we know that simply because Moses gives us more words in day six than all the previous days. He gives us more words or more attention of who God is in day seven than any of the previous days. So sometimes you just practically can read the Bible and go, okay, he's speaking a lot about this, so I should really understand what it is. We just see this as a, as a a uh, quantitative way to read the scriptures, meaning there's a lot of words here. I wonder if Moses had run-on sentences, or I wonder if he wanted to tell us a lot of things about day six. On day six, God created the land animals and then seemed to pause. He seemed to pause there. The narrator slows the pace, and this is important. You can almost see the, the music, if you've ever seen a musical. It starts to have a, a lower tenor to it as he's wanting to bring our attention to what is happening here. God either deliberates with himself as he starts talking in the plural about what he wants to do. He's either deliberating with himself or he is announcing his intention from his royal court. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Now, in the ancient world, a long time ago, a king would place images of himself, statues in far-off promises, or in far-off provinces. We even have this today. Those of you who work at the base, 
You see a couple of portraits or a couple of pictures every time you go into an official room, right? You see the president, the vice president, maybe the colonel on the base, where, where it is important of who is in charge ultimately of this circumstance. The images of a king in ancient times or even presidents in our day told everyone that these provinces, that base, were a, lot, were a part of a dominion that someone had ownership of. And with that understanding, it's in the text that God made human beings in his image placed us on his earth. In other words, our world is God's domain. It is his kingdom. But in a sharp contrast with the Babylonian creation epic, Enuma Elish, that, that, that epic paints humans as actually slaves to the many gods around them. They actually had to do a lot of different things so that those gods, you know, they think of the god of the moon or god of the sky or whatever, those gods would have to be served by the humans on earth so that the gods could then rest. As images of God, though, we were made unique, different than trees, different than cattle, different than any other thing in the water or above in the skies. We have the image impressed on us of the one who made everything. Genesis 1 proclaims that we were created in God's image. And that is, that, that means that in, we are God's representatives in this world. It, what, it, it's what gives us value. And you can see how even thousands of years later and thousands of years ago, people have not placed value on image bearers. People have downplayed the value of an image bearer. People have taken, uh, people have taken advantage of image bearers. So even, even ethical things like stealing from someone else comes back to the root foundation of the creation account, taking, taking someone's life. It actually comes from a proper standing of this or even stooping down to care for someone who is beneath you, you might think. That is an image bearer of God. And as images of God, we are given a call to manage his kingdom on God's behalf. This is God's good plan for his kingdom and his human beings where God carefully deliberates what is happening. He says, let us make humankind in our image. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, in verse 26, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps up on earth. So God created human, humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he later said it was very good. As God earlier blessed fish and birds so that they could be fruitful and multiply, God here would bless both males and females with an eye towards reproduction and celebration of having dominion over the earth. It is amazing what humankind was given at the beginning. They were told to obey God. They were told that they could have a, uh, they could have a relationship with God. But then almost as just a remarkable sense of his kindness, they were, they were given the earth. And he says, it's all yours to keep. Everything should obey you and submit to you. We see even there, there's a foretaste of what would happen, the danger of what would happen in Genesis chapter 3, where a beast of the field would come in, almost lift himself up and start speaking to humankind and directing human order. And we see the tragedy that falls off of that when mankind starts listening to a serpent or a beast of the field. Because in its original form, in its goodness, in its very goodness, man was supposed to rule totally over the earth and submit themselves to God entirely. As God earlier blessed the fish of the birds, he said that mankind should have a reproductive frame of mind and having dominion over everything. In verse 28, it says, and then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. Both male and female here receive this high honor and authority of being rulers over this earth on behalf of the king of the universe. And God next here, within this second point, God next makes provision for food for his creatures in contrast to the ancient uh, epic Atrophaeus, where gods made humans to provide food for the gods. We see this oftentimes in like cartoons or maybe when you study Roman history and world history or um, Greek history and world history where, where these gods need to constantly be satisfied and you have to constantly work and bring them food or make them happy because they're not at rest. And we sense the, the goodness of God though in this creation as, as having the opposite effect. God actually places man in the garden and provides things for this man, for this man not for himself. We see that our God doesn't need this, but he is kind and gracious and good, giving mankind a way to live. The king of the universe would judge all that he created, and he judged it as very good. The conflict of chaos obstructing the formation of life has been completely resolved. The original chaos has become a well-ordered cosmos, and it was very good. It was great. It was marvelous. God's creation is his marvelous gift for us to enjoy and develop responsibly. We recognize that God was not bored when he made everything. He wasn't needy as he made everything. We see that even in the pluralistic or plural language of, of the, we would understand this to be the triune God talking to himself, talking amongst of himself of what he wants to do. He wants to have this creation be enjoyed by man. And it's an amazing thing knowing that he does not need us, but he provides everything that we need. The outcome of this narrative underscores the goodness of God's creation. You'll you read in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the, the second part. Um, it really blends with chapter uh, 1 altogether, where God then rested on the seventh day. After he made everything, he rested and he called it holy. He hallowed it, you could say. After he made everything good, saw it as very good, he then rested from his time in filling what he formed and bringing order to chaos. So here we see that creation is complete. His kingdom on earth is well established, and therefore God blesses this seventh day and makes it holy. And what God has created on the other days, he declared good, even very good, but on the seventh day, he makes holy. He set it apart from the days of work to a very special day of rest. Now there's a third thing that is rising to the top. The first, the first thing that we see from this text is just the clarity that God spoke and it happened. The second thing that we see is God made and it was declared good. But the third thing that you and I must see, and this helps us, I believe, to live well, is that we see that God created the earth not only with his word, but he created all things in seven days. The author of Genesis highlights the number seven. If you just read this, and I'm not, I'm not a big numbers guy, but if you just read this, you start recognizing, man, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of sevens that are happening in this text. And even there's a lot of multiples of sevens. Check, check this out. The author of Genesis highlights the number seven and its multiples. In the, in, the he, in the Hebrew, verse one, it's nine words to us in English, but it was seven words to them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words. In verse 2, it has 14 Hebrew words, which is two times seven. And in this narrative, the name of God, Elohim, is mentioned 35 times, which is five times seven, while heavens and earth are each mentioned 21 times, which is three times seven. Seven, we see replicated over and over in the scriptures, is a number of completeness. 
a number of perfection. The, the understanding that it was perfect how God made the heavens and the earth. The understanding that it was perfect and how he presented himself to his creation as Elohim. As it is perfect for all of these things that are being established are according to his perfect word. Israel knew and would know the number seven, especially from its weekly cycle. Now, when I played t-ball, everyone wanted the number seven. Or when the Dallas Cowboys were actually good, the greatest player on the team had the number seven. And, and as Christians, all of us want the number seven, right? Because that's the perfect number. And it's not like that, though, kind of. And why do the quarterbacks always get number seven? What about us fullbacks who have to be like 34, which means nothing in God's good created order? Because we're lowly, but we're servants. Now, in the scriptures, we see this replicated so perfectly and preciously where Israel knew the number seven by its weekly cycle, its weekly calendar. When Israel traveled through the desert, the Lord taught them to gather manna six days a week like he created the earth, go to work, and then on the seventh to trust God that the manna which they gathered on the sixth day would not spoil for the next seven. All right, so we see this in Exodus chapter 6, 16, where they would work for six and then trust that God would still feed him, he would still provide them on that seventh day. Later at Sinai, where the law was given, this pattern was codified in the Ten Commandments, where it says, six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, in Exodus 20, verses 9 through 10. And so we, we see that the author of Genesis uses Israel's week of six days of work, followed by rest on the seventh day, as a pattern to proclaim to Israel that God himself completed his work of creating in six days and then rested on the seventh. But Moses here does face a problem in wanting to perfectly portray this work in seven days, six days of work, seven days of rest. Because if you're a student here and you're just looking at this, you'll go, wait a second, there are eight things that he's bringing our attention to in this forming and filling. There's four over here, and then there's four over here, which is eight. And how is that seven? Maybe Moses, just for a little bit, isn't that great at math. But we see Moses' intention here where he faces seemingly a problem. A week has only six work days and clearly wanted to remind them of eight creative acts. He solved this problem by placing two acts of creation on day three and then two other acts of creation on day six. And this solution highlights a beautiful, what is called a parallelism between the days. Now, Origen and Augustine were the first to discover this or at least voice this in their own preaching modes like, 1,900 years ago, that Moses constructed day four, five, and six to parallel day one, two, and three. So you think about that. What happened on day one shows itself in a filling on day four. What happened on day two shows itself in a filling on day five. What happened on day three shows itself in a filling on day six. This is a way of, of bringing an attention to something specific. Let me get to that in a moment. Day one was light. Day four was light bearers, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two was an expanse being formed. And day five was the inhabitants of the sea and the sky. Fish and the birds now have their place within that. Day three, these two creative acts on day three, land and vegetation only on day six to find land animals and human beings that can eat those things by. But anytime you see this parallelism, you've got one, two, three going this way, four, five, six going this way. The point is not to just understand what is happening there, but notice that they are going to a point. 
Days one through three, we're longing for a point in day seven. Days four through six, we're longing for a point in day seven. This linguistic style of argumentation is bringing our attention to the reality that the God who made everything by his word then rested. He was not in need. He was not exhausted. He was not tired. He was not overwhelmed. It's like he sat down and he enjoyed I think something that's important for us to understand that whenever we hear or read scripture, we come to it with an understanding that it is what, um, what doctrinally we understand to be called as sufficient. The scripture is sufficient for us to know God by. Doctrinally, this means scripture is sufficient and that it is the only inspired and errant word from him and therefore it has final authority for Christians to go towards faith and godliness with all other, all other authorities on the earth being submissive to Scripture. What's, what the sufficiency of Scripture means is that it is completely all that we need. It is sufficient in that all that God wants us to have to know Him and grow in holiness with Him is sufficiently given, us to, given to us in the Bible. Friends, if you want to grow as a Christian, what would be the greatest tool that you could buy from a shelf? The Scriptures. Why? Because it's sufficient for you. But sufficiency also has another component to it too. There's an element of trust that God gives us not just all that we need, but sufficiently everything that we need. He didn't just give us all that we need, but also everything that we need, even when sometimes we feel like we need more. Even sometimes when we feel like we've given too much. No, no, no. He's given exactly what he wants us to have to pursue him in holiness. Now, I say all that, Because sometimes we want more information than what is given to us. And that's not a mistake. Oftentimes we approach texts like this and we want it to say more than it will need. Now some of us may come to this text and want to go immediately to a calendar. Or we want to go immediately to a telescope or a microscope. Or we want to go to a map or a museum. Or we might sign ourselves up to have a debate. And those will be things that many Christians are spurred on to do when they read this text. And they should. And it's great. If you want to know how old the universe is, go for it boldly. If you want to understand the complexity of land formation and and deep celestial movement and be an astronaut, go for it boldly. But don't do it first. The point of the passage is not for you first to go. The, The intention of this text is not for you to do anything but behold the glory of God who rules over and mocks evil. The intention of this text was for the fearful Israelites to take to their knees in prayerful hope, wonder, and trust that their God is the God who deserves all glory, praise, and honor. So we need to be careful. You've heard me say this before. We need to be careful not, if we see the the truth of Scripture as a line, we need to be careful not to go above the line of Scripture. I would add to it. Nor do we need to go below the line of Scripture that would take authority away from it. We need, to, we need to be as clear as God's clear word is. And Moses has prepared a carefully crafted sermon to comfort Israel and comfort us today. Two ways I want to demonstrate Moses' beautiful intent. And I bet there are like 50 ways in this passage. But I just want to give you two. The first one is I want you to, I want you to understand a little bit and see that the players on the field. You know, I remember back just, I don't know why I'm using this analogy twice now in a sermon, but back when the Dallas Cowboys were good and they went to Super Bowls, I think I knew every player on offensive defense at the age of seven. 
What was I spending time doing? Not math. I was looking at, you know, the org chart of this team. But, and that's how we can enjoy the, enjoy the game more by knowing the characters on the field. Friends, know the characters in this text. Remember how Israel feared the powerful pagan gods? Moses, for them, is so great. Moses has crafted an understanding of God's glory by showing all of these made-up mini-gods and demonic forces are actually under control of the one who was there in the beginning. And it's incredible. And this will be a pattern for God's people as they grow. You might remember uh, the Exodus account, the Exodus account where where people uh, were, were where Moses went to Pharaoh and was pleading with Pharaoh, let my people go, even commanding him, let my people go. And Pharaoh was saying, I'm not going to let them go. They must be here. And then what did God do? He rained out 10 different plagues. Again, the number 10, 10 different plagues. And that wasn't just a random occurrence that Yahweh was pouring out in wrath on the nation of Egypt. All of these plagues are not only literally happening, historically happened, but they were a symbolic mockery of what Egypt was worshiping. A river? Oh, you like a river? Now it's filled with blood. Oh, you worship the beasts of the field? Frogs are going to take over you. Oh, you you think you trust in vegetation instead of responding to my glory and authority? I'm going to send locusts, and they're going to eat everything. I want you to submit to me and beg for mercy. And what did Pharaoh finally do? Get out. And here we have, in this case, in the same way, attacks on God's people through things like a God of sun, or a God of animals, or a God of water, or even creatures of the field. The author places creation of the sun, moon, and stars. He, pl- he places uh, them with an understanding that East Israelites would understand, wait, that's what they're worshiping? And they're, that thing is submissive to our God? And as a mockery to those pagans who would say, we trust in this, and the Israelites would say, It's under his control, not yours. What are you doing? Our God will advance over you in his right time. But on top of that, not only know the characters of the field and their differences, these would have been ancient awarenesses or these would have been ancient gods that people would have worshipped wrongfully that God is bringing their attention to of how they submit to. But notice also where Moses places some of these gods. Notice where the author places the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. This would have been very popular. And even if you open up our uh, Enid News and Eagle, what's, off, uh, what's normally there in like the middle of the week are, are astrology notes for us to understand by and live by. And every time I'm like, man, this is still happening? Yes, God is still being mocked and he still mocks that with his own word. But notice where he places the sun, the moon, and the stars. He places them on the fourth day. Right between creation of vegetation on day three and the creation of the fish and the birds on day five. What Moses is intending to show us is he is saying to Israel that these powerful fake pagan gods, the sun, the moon, and the stars, are as much part of God's creatures as plants and birds. Why do you fear them? They're on the same level as a tree that you would chop down. Notice that in verse 16, the author deliberately avoids the name of the sun and the moon. That uses language like starry things, Shemez or Urah, instead of saying sun and moon. The names of these pagan gods, there was a god of the sun, there was a god of the moon that these pagans would have worshipped. He writes, God made these two great lights, doesn't even call them by name, won't even say their name. God made these two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser night to rule over the night, and the stars. To some, these are powerful, fearful gods of the pagan, but in reality, they are only lights from the voice of Yahweh. 
Do you hear what fearful Israel heard? Our God created absolutely everything in the universe. The pagan gods, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're just creatures. They're not even real. But if you think they're real, I've just placed them in the sky. Our destiny is not held by the stars. We need not fear chance or anything else in this universe. We follow our Lord who made all things. The, the sovereign God made everything and controls everything, and he will take care of his people. And the second thing I want to bring your attention to that I think Moses, he intends to demonstrate about the uniqueness of day, is the, the intended uniqueness of day seven. So we, we look at this and we go, man, how do, I, how do I understand all that is within this creation account? I think Moses helps demonstrate this to us with his particular language on the uniqueness of day seven. Look at, look at Genesis chapter one, verse 31, all the way through chapter two, verse three. I'll read it for you. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it he rested from all his work and he had created in making it. I think you'll notice if you keep hovering over and examining the text that there is a linguistic difference from days one through six, and then day seven. Days one through six are talked about as different in their conclusion as day seven picks up in its entirety. Day one through six have the phrase, there was evening and there was morning, meaning there was day and night, 24-hour day. But on day seven, it doesn't have that language. Now, we're talking about 24-hour days. We're talking about a week here. We can, we can take trust in the reality that when Moses uses yom, meaning day, in days one through six and seven, he's actually talking about day and night, like we would use elsewhere, and that is used elsewhere in the scriptures. But, but this day seven sticks out because there's no morning and evening on that. There's no morning and evening on day seven. Now, guys, this, again, is another breathtaking part of Moses' work. People, people will talk about tremendous writers like Shakespeare or Dickens or Dostoevsky or Hemingway, and they ought to put Moses up there with these all-time greats. Like, what Moses is doing here is not just recounting about something that he saw, but he is piecing together something for the sake of us to purely marvel at. In the beginning, God made everything, and it was good, and it was very good, and then he rested, except According to the text, the sun never set on his rest. He's never shown to no longer be in resting in the rest of Scripture. There's never language throughout the rest of the Scripture in its entirety that he then took a break from his rest and went back to work. Now, yes, the Scriptures do show that he is active. They do show in the Psalms that he is never asleep. One of my favorite Bible verses is that our God never sleeps. It shows that he is waiting and calling and longing and working to draw people to himself. But in the midst of every ounce of chaos that you and I live in, our God is at rest completely. My friend, God is sovereign and sustaining of everything. And yet he is still at rest. Now you and I can look at his creation account days one through seven. And aim for one of those two things. I think we do this a lot. You can pridefully want to work like him. I want to create. I want to make. I want to, I want to do something that shows that from nothing came something. You can, you can go after this and think, I want to work like the Lord works. And that may be an honoring thing to do. But I would imagine that for a lot of you, you can look at him, the all-powerful God, and you can wonder 
and you can wish and you can hope. I want that rest. He, he seems pretty calm and collected there. All of my life is miserable. I want that. And, and the rest of the longings of the scriptures will show men aiming to pursue God's rest in the, long, in the wrong way. And what is so amazing about this is that you can have this comfort and peace. You can have this rest from God. You, you would be able to take it. You can be in a place where you can take a step back and rest in the reality that all things will be made by forming and filling new and good in the final days. And my friend, as you long for that rest, you need to know that that rest is uniquely offered to the image bearers in the person of the Son of Jesus. The rest that we may marvel at in the beginning is offered to us, where he provides rest in the incarnated word made flesh. It was the Son of God who was there at the beginning, whom John and Colossians will later show to be the very God that everything was made through at creation. It was the Son of God who then demoted himself to come to earth. The earth he created and took to himself flesh only to live perfectly where your and my labors fall short on the reg. It was the Son of God who used the very same breath that created the sun, the moon, and the stars, the valleys, the rivers, the beasts, the field, who recognized everything seems to be falling apart around them. And with his same voice, he looked at these image bearers who were longing for rest. And what did he say? Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. God who is at rest imputes his rest on his people through his son's work on the cross. Friends, as you and I examine the creation story, and you should live the rest of your life marveling at it, be amazed at from the word nothing became everything. Be amazed that in his judgments he made everything good, but be amazed that the one who rests offers you the same through Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your word recognizing that it is for our good, recognizing that we can never plumb in its entirety the glory that you intended to us. We ask that you would cause our attention to be brought back to you where we can marvel at your firm grip in our lives, where we can respond to you as the one who holds all things together. Our Lord, we are thankful for how you have spoken and continue to speak. And we pray that you would bring yourself more glory through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.